I'd like to echo what's, uh, what's already been said this morning and <clears throat> saying happy Mother's Day to all the, all the moms. I think today's one of those maybe natural uh, days of reflection in our, uh, in our lives. And so whether you're a mom who's, whose kids are still young or, or a mom whose kids have had their own kids and whose grandkids are having their own kids, um, perhaps you've, you've reflected a bit already or, or maybe, uh, maybe you will right now for the first time that you became a mom, reflecting on that, that moment when that happened for the first time. You might remember all the anticipation, uh, excitement, nerves, uh, planning that, uh, that went on during those nine months of your pregnancy. Um, might remember when your labor finally began in earnest after some false alarms, potentially. Um, may remember being at the hospital or uh, birthing center or, or at home um, when, uh, when the time finally came to begin pushing. And then might remember the whole process culminating in, in finally being able to meet your child outside of your womb. It's kind of a natural day to reflect on that. And, and in many ways, the, the birth of a child is kind of the end of a crazy nine-month journey um, uh, in some ways. But as, as you reflect on that birth of your first child, you may also remember that point where it was time to leave the hospital uh, or time to go home. Or, or if you gave birth at home, it was time for the doctor to leave. And, and go back to his home. And you, you may have realized at that point, oh, this isn't the end. <laughs> this isn't the end of all this. In fact, it's just the beginning. You may have had that moment where it's like, now what? Am I hitting a the nerve there with anybody? Like, now what? I, take, I get to take this baby home? They're going to let me leave the hospital with this child? You know, everything that had, that had just taken place was not the end. It was kind of the end of that nine-month journey, but it wasn't the end. In a lot of ways, it was just the beginning of a radically different life from that point forward, a radically different life from what you'd had before. And, you know, I think, I think there's, there's parallel here between the new life of a baby and, and new life in Christ. If, if you remember back to uh, last week's passage, Paul reflected with the church in Colossae about the incredible mystery of God that had been revealed to them. So the gospel message had been brought to their town by Epaphras, it seems. And the people listened to the gospel message. They were confronted for the first time with the truth that, that God loved them so much that he offered his life on the cross in order that they might be forgiven of their sins. And then in addition, uh, along with that, the, the mystery which Paul referenced was the mystery that God had now come to dwell within Gentiles who would receive him, not just within Jews, that God could also dwell within Gentiles. So all throughout history, God had been working in such a way that not only would salvation be available to anyone on earth, but that he himself would be available to anyone on earth. 
So upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that day finally came, that reality finally came. Upon the day of uh, Pentecost, that mystery was finally revealed as the Holy Spirit came and, and settled on God's people. And then upon the Colossians' reception of the gospel message, they finally experienced firsthand that mystery, God dwelling within them as Gentiles. But much like with the birth of a child, that new life that the Colossians received was not the end, was it? Wasn't the end for them. In fact, uh, quite the opposite. It was actually just the beginning of a radically different life than they had before. So let's listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. I think he draws out this reality very, very well. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, if you'd like to follow with me. Paul writes this, Therefore, and of course, therefore is in reference to kind of what I just said. Therefore, in reference to their salvation, to the mystery of God being revealed to them. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the moment, the moment in which the believers came to faith in Jesus, that wasn't the end of their journey. Was not the end. Paul reminded them of that moment where they received Christ Jesus as Lord, but then he told them, now walk in him. Walk in Christ. Now, if you look at, at the, uh, the sermon notes for today, you'll, you'll see that each statement has the phrase, in Christ, in, in the notes. And, and that's because Paul uses the phrase, in him, repeatedly throughout this passage. So to walk in Christ means much more than just believing in him. I mean, Paul uses words like rooted and built up. It, it, it is the sense in which we live our very lives in light of Jesus. It's not just believing who he is, but walking in him, living in light of that belief. In a way, it, it speaks of, rea of a reality in which uh, our, our Sunday morning is not lived in contrast to our Tuesday afternoon or our Friday evening or, or any other time. Uh, uh, I came across a quote by Billy Graham, and, and he says it this way. He says, No man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he's not truly converted, to, converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. And in a way, walking in Jesus is, is that. It's surrendering our will to him. It's not, not just saying the right things or, or thinking the right things or even, even showing up to the right amount of church services. It, it, it's yielding ourselves to him, trusting in him as we do that. that, that that's a walking in Christ. And I would... Love to stand up here this morning and tell you that walking in Jesus is just simple and easy and that there's nothing to it. But, uh, but you and I both know that's not always the case, right? I, we know that. We know that from experience. We, we live in a fallen, sinful world. There are constant temptations for us to walk in our own way instead of walking in the way of Jesus. 
And, and I, Paul knew that too. And, and, and I think that's why he cautioned the believers then to remain in Christ, is what he goes on to say. So look with me at verse 8. He said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I, I, I think this verse is the very reason Paul wrote this letter to the church, that there was a philosophy of empty deceit called Gnosticism that, that was infiltrating the church. Paul knew, he knew that Gnosticism was based on human tradition and it was empowered by evil spirits as opposed to being in line with Christ. And so Paul wrote this letter in response to that. And he also knew that it wasn't just a matter of, of simple difference of opinions. It wasn't that both paths were going to lead to the same place. Um, holding to Gnostic thought would lead the church right back into captivity. They'd been set free. They'd been given victory through Jesus, which we'll talk more about later on this morning. But, but to walk according to that hollow, that deceptive philosophy wouldn't make them captive once again. Paul knew that, and that's why he cautioned them against it. It, it, uh, it was imperative that the church walk in Christ rather than in the empty deceit that was, that was set before them. And, and perhaps we look at this kind of a verse and assume that, well, that really applies to them. That, that applies to that context only, that this is something that the church in Colossae was dealing with. And so, okay, I don't have to focus on that too much. And, and if, if we think that way, I would say we're seriously mistaken. Because I would, I would argue that we are confronted with more philosophies of empty deceit today than may, may, maybe any people throughout history. I, I feel like you could make that argument. The, the prevalence of these philosophies and the ease with, with which they can travel in, in this technological age that we're in, I think really is unprecedented. You know, every, every time we, we see an advertisement on TV, for example, we're being sold the empty philosophy of consumerism. We just are. We're told the lie that, that buying certain products or eating certain foods or driving a certain vehicle will bring meaning and fulfillment in life. It, it, it's an empty philosophy that's being put before us. Um, every, every time we watch the news, e even if the news were truly unbiased, we're confronted with the empty philosophies of, uh, of culture. We're told the lie that the world is, is beyond repair, or we're told the lie that, that certain political agendas will fix what is broken, or we're told the lie that the government is either uh, the problem or the savior. Uh, it, it's, it, it's an empty philosophy that we're told. We're, we're, we're led to believe that security is the most important. We're led to believe that our identity is most important, that our freedom is most important, that our feelings are most important, or, or just that we ourselves are the most important. There are, there, are, there are empty philosophies all over the place that we are confronted with everywhere we turn. And if we're not rooted and established in Jesus, if we're not walking in Jesus, then the danger is we'll be taken captive. 
we will be taken captive by one or, or multiple of those empty philosophies. The, the simple truth of the gospel, the simple yet uh, radical example of Jesus during his life, the, the simple call to walk in love as Christ loved us, is that it's all the foundation upon which our lives must be built. And, and in case the believers in Colossae felt that the Gnostic philosophy was maybe better suited to transform the world than Jesus himself was, Paul went on to remind them of all the things that God had done in them through his work of salvation. And, and, and you, you'll notice here that uh, as we progress through the passage from this point on, uh, Paul shifts to past tense. You know, he, he tells them, you know, walk in Christ, you know, remain in Christ, and then everything else in him that he talks about now, it's past tense. It's, it's, he's describing what has already taken place in the believers because they are in Christ. So, so the first thing is that they've been filled. They've been filled with Christ. Verse 9, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now this, if you're counting, this is the third time in this letter that Paul has referenced the reality that Jesus is fully and completely God. And then along with that, along with the fullness of deity comes headship over all rule and authority. But, but this time, Paul takes it even a step further. He, he reminds the believers that in addition to Jesus having been filled with all deity, they themselves have been filled in him, been filled through him. And, and then this goes back to the mystery of the gospel that we talked about last week, the mystery that Christ dwells within Gentiles. So if the believers ever felt like they were lacking anything and, and needed some empty philosophy to help them find something, they really only need to remember that they are filled by the one who is the fullness of God. And I'm not sure which is the bigger miracle, to be honest, that the fullness of God can dwell in the person of Jesus or that God himself can dwell in me. Uh, you know, in a way, they're both equally unexplainable, both equally miraculous in a way, and, and both equally true as well. Upon receiving Christ Jesus as Lord, we are filled in him. Everything we need to walk in Jesus, we've been given through Jesus. So it means you and I don't lack anything. We're not inferior in Christ. We're filled in Jesus. Paul reminds the believers of that here in this passage. And then he goes on again to talk about things that have happened he says that, that we're circumcised, we're buried, we're resurrected in Christ. Um, verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And we're going to stop right there before we go farther. 
You know, in the Old Testament, the, the rite of circumcision was that physical act which set apart the people of God. It was the, that physical act in which the, the foreskin was removed from all eight-day-old boys. And, and what Paul says is that we too have been circumcised in Jesus, but it's not a physical circumcision. He says it's, it's not a circumcision uh, made with hands. It's made without hands. In other words, rather than skin being removed, it is our body of flesh. It is our sinful nature, which has been removed and cut off in Christ. So we no longer live under that old sinful nature. Christ Jesus is our Lord, as, as Paul stated in verse 6. It's not our body of flesh that is our Lord. It's Jesus himself. And, and he goes on, then he, he, he talks about the physical act of baptism. Those who've been baptized have, have physically displayed the reality that they've both died in Christ and been raised to life in Christ. So that going under the water symbolizes being buried in Christ. It's, it's the symbol of, of the old sinful nature being put to death. And then the coming up from the water symbolizes being raised to life in Christ. In, in, in place of the old sinful nature is, is new life in Jesus. And, and Paul talks about this also in Romans chapter 6. I just thought it'd be good to kind of read another section that he wrote on this topic. Romans 6, verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If only it were that easy, some of us might say, this being dead to sin and living in the new life in Christ. And I would want to respond to that, well, it, it is and it isn't, right? I mean, it's true that we live in a, that fallen world, um, filled with sin. We face temptation on a daily basis, and because we're free humans whose, whose sanctification is not yet complete, we do sin. So it's not that easy, but it also is that easy. Our sinful nature has been cut off. Uh, we're no longer held captive. We, we are completely free to choose to walk in Jesus. We've been empowered to do so by God himself. Paul writes it, and he encourages the church to walk in Christ. He encourages us to do it as well. And so we can't forget. We can't forget that we've been filled in Christ, that we've been circumcised in Christ, that we've been buried and resurrected to new life in Christ. I think sometimes what, what, what we really need is to be reminded of that reality, to then live in that reality in Christ. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to downplay uh, the influence of habits or, or, or trauma or, or temptation or anything like that. Um, 
but I do want to proclaim this morning that those in Christ have had their sinful nature cut off and removed. I mean, that is the truth. That is who we are in Christ and how well we would do to wake up each day and, and be reminded of that incredible blessing. Doesn't mean the temptations won't come, but to be reminded that in Christ, the old has been put to death. The new has, been, has come. It has been raised to life in Christ. But there's even more. There's even more that Paul reminds the church of. So in addition to the, the physical pictures of uh, circumcision, baptism, Paul gives another physical picture um, toward the end of verse 13 there. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And I want to dwell on this one just just a little bit longer, maybe, than the others this morning. Upon receiving Christ Jesus the Lord, it, it, it's not just that our sinful nature is put to death and removed, and, and it's not just that we are given new life in Jesus. Those, those things are true. But all our trespasses are forgiven. I mean, let, let's just, all our trespasses are forgiven. The, the complete record of debt that stood against us has been canceled. It's been nailed to the cross, as, as Paul says here. You may remember the, the uh, written charge nailed to the cross above Jesus' head at his crucifixion. Um, that, that wasn't something unique to Jesus' situation. The, the, the list of crimes that a person was found guilty of having committed was, was often nailed uh, to the cross along with them. And so what, what an incredible picture Paul paints here. The only crime listed on the notice of, on Jesus' cross was his identity as the king of the Jews. And, uh, of course, that wasn't a crime, but those crucifying him viewed it as such. But even though they couldn't be seen physically, what Paul is saying here is that, that each and every sin which you and I have committed was nailed to the cross as well. There maybe wasn't the physical notice, like the one that said King of the Jews, but, but everything else, all those sins that we have committed, not that Christ committed, but that we did, were nailed to that cross. The, the Roman uh, authorities thought they were crucifying Jesus because of his claim to be king. They, they thought that's what was going on there, and the Jewish leaders, the same thing. But in actuality, in actuality, Jesus was crucified because of our sins. I mean, that, that's what should have been nailed to the cross there. And so I thought because Paul's using pictures this morning, why not, why not take it a step farther and picture it here as well? So we may, we may look back on our lives and and find sin. Well, not may. We do. We do look back on our lives and find sin. There may be, may be times we look back and, and we find that, uh, that our anger has gotten, gotten the better of us. That has been forgiven. It's been forgiven and nailed to the cross. 
Maybe, maybe times that we, uh, we look back and we find that, that we were deceitful in one way or the other. Same thing, that has, that has been nailed to the cross. Might have, been, uh, might have been prideful decisions that we've made in the past. You know the drill by now. That has been nailed to the cross. There are all kinds of addictions that can grab a hold of us. Maybe an addiction to a substance, maybe an addiction to pornography. Same thing, that has been nailed to the cross. Perhaps there's been an affair that's taken place. Same thing, nailed to the cross. Maybe maybe we look back and and we see we see selfishness, selfishness in in how we've handled money or or possessions or or time, whatever the case. Same thing that is nailed to the cross. Maybe there's been. Maybe there's been a, a refusal to forgive others in the past. Fittingly, a refusal to forgive has been nailed to the cross and forgiven. And, uh, and this obviously isn't an exhaustive list, right? I mean, we don't have the time this morning we don't have the physical space on this cross to nail up there every single sin that you and I have ever committed. But we get the point, all right? We get the point. I mean, this is the reality of what has taken place in Christ. Every, Paul says, every amount of debt that we owe due to our sins, and, and that debt is is death. That That is the the payment, the punishment for sin, that, that debt has been canceled. It's been canceled. It's been forgiven in Christ. And so then as a result of that, Paul goes on to talk about the victory, the victory in Christ. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I mean, what Paul's saying there is that, that the rulers, the authorities, Satan himself has been put to shame. There can be a lot of shame connected to these things, right? I mean, when we look back, even knowing that we're forgiven, we can still have shame come up within us. And what Paul's saying is, no, no, we're not the ones in shame right now. It's the rulers, the authorities, it's, it's Satan himself that has been put to shame. Our shame's been taken away. That's been forgiven. That's been removed. There, there's a story, there's a story 
that's told about Martin Luther that goes like this. I can't tell you if it's true for sure or not. It might be one of those legend things, but, but man, it makes the point. It says, Martin Luther experienced the reality of this truth in a dream in which he was visited at night by Satan, who brought to him a record of Luther's own life written with Luther's own hand. The tempter said to him, Is that true? Did you write it? The poor terrified Luther had to confess it was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled, and the same confession was wrung from him again and again. At length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of abject misery. And one could see why, right, when we think about our scrolls and the sins that would be written on them. But suddenly, the reformer turned to the tempter and said, It is true, every word of it, but right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Cleanses us from all sin. I mean, all, all these things which have been nailed to the cross don't hold any power over us anymore. And in, in a effect, the accuser has lost his ammunition we want to put it that way. Because it's been forgiven. The debt has been paid. And what a, what a wonderful reality that's communicated through, through that story of Luther, what Paul communicates to us in his writing here. And that's our reality. That, that's, that's the truth in which we live in Christ. You know, th- this morning has been a lot of, uh, a lot of pictures, in a way, of the work of Christ, the picture of circumcision, the picture of baptism, um, the picture of uh, sins being nailed to a cross. Um, but we've got one more picture that we'll talk about and focus on this morning, and that's, that's communion in front of us here. Yeah. There, are, there are empty philosophies which state that the, the body and the blood of Jesus either either aren't necessary or aren't sufficient for salvation. You can find both of those philosophies. Uh, but, but those are just that. They're, they're, they're empty philosophies. They are empty philosophies, and we can't be taken captive by them. We cannot. Instead, we have to walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. We have to remember that we are filled in him. We are circumcised buried, resurrected to new life in him. In him we are forgiven, as, as Paul tells us. And then finally, we're victorious. We are victorious in Christ. And, and you know, communion reminds us of that. It takes us back to what wasn't just a picture, the crucifixion, but, but the reality, the actual transaction that was taking place of our record of uh, debt being forgiven and wiped clean. So we're going to remember that this morning as we, as we take communion. And, and just a reminder that, uh, that we do have our, our regular uh, bread and juice in there. Um, the bread is gluten-free, as it always is. Uh, but we do also have, uh, um, if, if you'd like something a bit more sanitary, we, we do still have some uh, prepackaged elements in there. So feel free to take one of those um, as you would like as well. 
Uh, the elders are going to come forward and we will, we will serve you communion this morning.